We are going to open up to Genesis 38 as we get into teaching. Genesis 38. For those who don't know, we're studying through chapter by chapter and verse by verse through the book of Genesis. It's 50 chapters long, and we're on the 38th chapter. Which What does that mean? We have 12 chapters left. Am I doing math right? And uh, it's been the better part of a year we've been in the book of Genesis, going verse by verse and parsing it out. Have you guys been enjoying it, learning anything new? Okay. Um, I can't stress this enough. Get a Bible, uh, get a physical Bible, and write in your Bible. Uh, You can see I've got 10 years worth of notes all over this Bible here. Um, On every page, like 10 to 12 years worth of notes. Get a Bible that you can write in and write all over it. Because then you can... um, you can, you can, what we call in education, the education world, scaffolding your knowledge and your, your, your learning, scaffolding your learning. Um, otherwise, the stuff that I cover today, you're only going to retain about 15% of it as you walk out of this place today. You'll retain 15% of what was taught today. But if you write it down, it's something that you can speak to you much later in life as you look in your Bible. So Genesis 38, so we left off with a, um, the son of Jacob. His name was Yosef, Joseph in English. He was sold, he was, um, uh, sold there we go, into uh, Egypt through the Ishmaelites. And they, remember, they betray him for silver and they put him in a pit, they bring him out, and then he's carried by a band of traveling Ishmaelites into Egypt. And that's where we leave off in Genesis 37. And you remember they brought the coat, the katonit pasim. Could you bring my board up? They brought the Katonit Pasim uh, to, to Jacob, and they said, look, your son, remember, they doused it in blood. Your son has been torn apart. Actually, he said that. My son has been torn apart by wild animals. And um, remember, what we said what goes around comes around. How did, how did Jacob deceive his father? Remember that? Yeah. With, the, with the, the goat hair, right? And he, and he pretended to be Esau. Let me kind of straighten up right here. Perfect. Thank you. What translation? Yeah. I just so happen to use the complete Jewish Bible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's, Sorry, it's yeah. Um, I don't want everybody to hear, oh, I need to go out and buy a complete Jewish Bible. But that's just, just so happened I use that. So Genesis 38, you guys ready? It was at this time that Judah, now let's pause here because anytime you see at this time, it's in the Hebrew, it's vizot, uh, vizot et. Um, that, that is a very loaded phrase. And you guys can go on a long rabbit trail throughout your week and, and look up that word in Hebrew, vizot ha'et. It was at the time. Um, that word et is a very specific word of, for time. There's, there's ed, there's et. And this denotes something that God is about to move in a new way. And sometimes it's, a, it's negative, sometimes it's positive. But look, look for the series and the occurrences of that phrase in the Hebrew specifically at this time, or it was that time. There is coming a time. Um, very loaded phrase, but you guys can do that in your free time. No pun intended. It was at that time that Yehuda, Judah, he went down from his brothers. If your translations say he went away or he separated from, that's not a good translation. It's literally, he went Yarad, Yarad. And Yarad in the Hebrew is spelled Yud, from right to left, Yud Resh Dalit. Yarad. This is where we get the name of the river that flows through the northern part of Israel, Yarden. It's the river that goes down, okay? It's to descend. Now, why is it talking about Judah descending here? Because you're supposed to see anytime that someone is going down, 
They're moving away from the presence of God. Their, their, their spiritual life and their relationship to their creator is diminishing. Anytime someone is going up in the Bible, yes, it's, it may be talking about geographical location and moving up, but really it's talking about when you're going up, it means that you're ascending into the presence. So it's speaking right away. Judah is saying, saying that Judah is descending in his relationship with his creator, with God. And it says he's, he went down from his brothers. In comparison to his brothers, he's going down. Bad things are about to happen for Judah. And he settled near a man named Hirah. Hirah, it means um, liberty, but it can also mean anger. Now, you'll notice this sometimes in societies and civilizations. There's a vast amount of liberty, a vast amount of everyone wanting to do what they want and what they want to do, right? Let's everyone is every man for himself. What does that ultimately produce? If you're, if you're a parents in the room and you let your kids just do whatever they want to do and there's no laws, there's no restrictions, it creates chaos. But did you know that child psychologists actually say in a home where there is little to no discipline, children become angry. Children become mad. They want and they crave discipline and restrictions. They want, a, they want structure in their life and they become angry and they take it out on other children or parents or other kids at school if there is little to no discipline or structure in their life. So that's this, this name. He's going to settle next to a man named Liberty or Anger. So we're supposed to see that being figurative as well, that Judah's going down spiritually. He's settling next to a man who is, is, is a man of liberty, but also a man of anger. He was, he was an Adulamite. Verse 2, There Judah saw one of the daughters of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. Shua. Let's pause here because um, he's seeing with his eyes. That's important. That Judah is using his eyes and he sees what type of woman? A Canaanite. Uh-oh. Because we know that in Genesis uh, 28, verses 1 through 2, if you want to flip back there real quick, Genesis 28, 1 through 2, we know that the descendants of Abraham were told, you are not to choose a wife from the Hittite women. Instead, choose daughters and a wife from the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. In other words, don't marry these women who are of the land. Marry women who are closely connected to our faith. But what is he doing? He's going and taking a wife from the Canaanites. And her name was Shua. Shua, and it's spelled, if you like, look at it in Hebrew, it's Shin, Vav, and then Ein. Shu, this is an S-H, and then an A. Shua, if you're reading it that way. Shua. And what does that sound like to you? Yeshua. This, this word here, it means uh, to cry out for help. Cry for help. You put, a, you put one Hebrew letter in front of it, a Yud, you have Yeshua, which means the salvation. You see there, inside the name, inside the name Yeshua is a cry for help. Okay? And that's, that's the essence of salvation. You're crying out for help. You can't be saved if you don't need saving or if you think you don't need saving. But then you put Yud. Now, the Yud is the first letter of whose name? God's name. God's name. You see, when we don't have God in our lives, we're just crying out for help, aren't we? But when we allow him in his hand to reach out, which Yud means hand, when we allow God's hand to work in our life, we are then saved. Our Shua, our cry for help, turns into Yeshua, salvation, salvation. So there he sees Shua, Shua, and he took her and he slept with her. She conceived and had a son whom he named Er. She conceived again and had a son whom she named Onan. 
She conceived yet again and had a son whom she called Shelah. He was in Xiv when she gave birth to him. Yehuda took a wife for his heir, his first son, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Yehuda's firstborn, was evil, Ra'ah, from Adonai's perspective. So Adonai killed him. Yehuda said to Onan, Go and sleep with your brother's wife. Perform the duty of a husband's brother to her and preserve your brother's line of descent. So here Judah is taking something that was likely at this point, an oral injunction, a moral injunction that's passed down from generation to generation that, that says basically we call this Levirate marriage, that if your, if your brother dies childless, you are to fulfill the duty and, and conceive a child with his widow so that his name in Israel continues. We call this uh, um, Levirate marriage. If you look over at Deuteronomy 25.5, Deuteronomy 25.5, this actually becomes codified in Torah law. Deuteronomy 25.5 says, if brothers live together and one of them dies childless, his widow is not to marry someone unrelated to him. Her husband's brother is to go to her and perform the duty of the brother-in-law by marrying her. And the first child she bears will succeed to the... Uh, will succeed to the name of his dead brothers, that his name will not be eliminated in all of Israel. You see, having a name in Israel is so important. It, it, is a, it is important, number one, because it is your connection to the land. If that widow loses her connection to the family, she loses her connection to the land. But also, what we're seeing here is Judah has been given a promise through the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the promise is this, that your descendants will be like the specks of dust and like the stars of the sky. And here we see that that has a very high likelihood of being now cut off, that God's promise is now being cut off through the line of Judah. And Judah cannot, Judah is about to be, um, he's about to be grandchildless. And that promise cannot be fulfilled in Judah's life because his sons and because they, you know, they died. And so let's, let's read on here. It says that, um, however, Onan knew that the child would not count as his. So whenever, whenever he had intercourse with his brother's wife, he spilled the seed onto the ground so as not to give his brother offspring. If you haven't had the, uh, the bird and the bees conversation yet with your kids that are in the room, I know what you're doing this afternoon. <laughs> Verse 10. What he did was evil from Adonai's perspective, so he killed him too. Now, why is this evil? Because you see, um, Onan is getting the pleasure of this experience, isn't he? But he's not willing to take on the responsibility of raising another child. So he's like, yeah, I'll go so far to be obedient to my father to where it gives me pleasure. But then up until that point, I'm not, I'm not fulfilling the, the wishes of my father and I'm cutting off my brother's name in Israel and doing so. You see, a name in the ancient Middle Eastern world is so important. Whether or not your name is, is tied to honor or whether it's tied to shame um, is so important. And whether or not you have land and a, and a connection to that land, and it's part of your heritage and part of your identity. You know, the Romans knew about this and they, they had a system in place called damnatio memori, which is, it means the, basically the damning of one's memory, the erasing of one's memory. 
There was one emperor in particular who experienced and he, he came under Domnatio Memori. Does anyone know which emperor that would be? Emperor Nero. Emperor Nero. Where basically it's Roman law that if you are under Domnatio Memori, every trace, every historical artifact, statues, mosaics, writings, they have to be blotted out. Your memory must be erased from the historical record. You see, the, 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 in the ancient world, a name is everything, isn't it? So let's read on. Well, let's, let's actually pause here, too. You see, Jacob thinks up until this point that his son Joseph is dead. He's experiencing the sorrow of a death of a child, isn't he? Remember, Joseph? He thinks he's dead. And it's the evening of the, evening of the scales that we see happening here. The leveling of the scales. Now, because, because um, Jacob, I'm sorry, Judah did that to his father, Jacob, and in essence, killing his son, now he has to experience the sorrow of losing a child. It's the reckoning, right? The evening of the scales. Verse 11, then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, stay a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, I don't want him to die too like his brother. So in other words, he's just like, he's hoping that she'll just forget about the whole situation. So Tamar went and lived at home with her father. In due time, Batshua, now this is her full name. If your translation says the daughter of Shua, that's not right. Her full name was Batshua. Batshua. The daughter, the, I'm sorry, Batshua, the wife of Yehuda, died. So Judah's wife, Batshua, is dying. Now, this name sounds a lot like another lady's name, Batsheba. You guys remember her name? Bathsheba in English? Bathsheba. There's a lot of similarities. There's actually one letter that's different. And there's a lot of similarities between these two stories. You know, both, um, both were taken as a product of looking, right? Bathsheba, Batshua, right? There's a lot, of, a lot of shadiness going on there. There was a lust of the eyes, right? And David, of course, the one that seized Bathsheba is a descendant of Judah. So she dies. And after Yehuda, Judah had been comforted, he went up to be with his sheep shearers in Timnah. Now, Timnah is, um, we think we know where it is on the map to this day. Timnah uh, has some old copper mines, some of the oldest in the world. But there's also remnants of temples at, at the, near the entrance of Timnah, um, where ancient sacrifices would have been done to different gods or goddesses that probably would have made out of the copper that they were mining out of those hills. But this is during the sheep shear. This is probably in the early spring. And he and his friends, Hira, the Adulami, remember his good buddy, the one that means liberty and anger. Now he's paired up with him and he's going to Timnah to shear the sheep. Tamar was told, your father-in-law has gone up to shear his sheep. Now, there's four places in the entire Bible where shearing sheep is mentioned. And you can do research on your own this week and, and identify those places. But every single time that someone is going to shear sheep or, or taking sheep to be sheared, there is about to be a reckoning. There is about to be some sort of revenge or retribution that takes place. 
And we're going to see that happen here. But every single time, four times, I printed out a study I read this morning, um, Israelite sheep shearing and David's rise to power. Um, it talks about the, that, that biblical uh, motif, that literary motif of shearing sheep and what it means and what it means for the characters that are about to get their sheep sheared. But I'll have that up here. If you want to get a picture of it or take it, you're welcome to do so. Really interesting. It says that she took off her widow's clothes and completely covered her face with her veil and sat at the entrance to Anayim. Anayim. Now, this is literally translated, translates to the place of the Anim. Anayim are eyes. The place of the eyes. Now, Judah already seems to have a problem with his eyes, doesn't he? Humanity as a whole, we have a problem with our eyes, don't we? You see, it is the gateway of everything. Yeshua says the eye is the what? Lamp of the body. It is the lamp of the body. He says, if your right eye offends you, do what? Pluck it out. out. He realizes, and he's speaking to the power of the eyes. But this is important. It says that she's at the entrance to the place of the eyes. Go with me to Genesis 3 real quick. Let's just see. We're supposed to pick up on this if we're reading it in the original. And that's why it's so important to read the Bible in its original language as much as possible if you can afford it. Because you miss so much if you don't. You know, people will fight over different translations or what translation is the best. I just, I say go all the way around all that big argument of what's trans and just dig into the original text as much as you can. It says in verse, uh, in, in chapter three, verse one of Genesis. Now the serpent was craftier than any wild animal which God had made. And he said to the woman, did he really say you're not to eat from the tree in the garden? The woman answered the serpent. We may eat from the fruit uh, of the trees of the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, he said, you're need to eat it nor touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, it's not true. It, it is not true that you will die because God knows on the day that you eat it, what your eyes, your anayim will be opened and you will be like God knowing good from evil. When the woman saw that the tree, that, that the tree was good for food, when she saw, right, she saw that the tree was good for food, that it had a pleasing appearance and that the tree was desirable for making one wise. She took some of its fruit and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. Then verse seven, the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked. You see, eyes get us in a lot of trouble, don't they? They get us in a lot. Oh, maybe it's just me. (laughs) They get me in a lot of trouble. I see things and what do I do? I desire, right? And I'm going to go out on a limb and say, you guys maybe struggle with that as well. And it says, she was sitting at the entrance to the place of the eyes, which is on the way to Timna. Now, if we just read Genesis 3, what we're being set up for here in Genesis 38, God's saying there's a cycle that people will see things with their eyes and then they'll what? They'll seize the fruit. So we're going to see Judah probably seize something here, just like the fruit. For she saw that Shelah had grown up, but still was not being given to him as his wife. Now, we're on a 20-year detour. From the moment that Joseph got sold into Egypt... It has been 20 years now. We're taking kind of that story has paused and now we're taking a 20 year kind of detour around to figure out what's going on with Judah now. Okay. When Judah saw her, he thought that she was a zona, a zona. Now there's two main words for someone that is a, a, a female that is using her body 
either selling her body for sex, for her own gain, or selling her body for the gain of someone else. We're going to talk about these two words. The first one is zona. Now, that's what Judah is saying he thought Tamar was, was a zona. This is a woman who is what we think of today a prostitute. Someone who gets paid to have sex with clients. Okay? Sorry, this is more PG-13 than maybe you thought. But that's a zona. The other word for a prostitute or a harlot is more specific. And the root of this word is right here. Kuf, Dalit, Sheen. Is anyone, am I Hebrew speakers? What is that? What? Close. Yeah, Kadesha. The root of this is Kadosh, holy. And when you add a, a hey on the end of it, it makes it a feminine. So it's like Kedesha. We can say with Q, Kedesha. This is the other word that we're going to see. You might be thinking, why does it mean the holy one or the set apart one? Because this right here is a cult prostitute, a temple prostitute, a woman who lives in the shrine of a pagan God. And it is your religious duty as a man to go in and to procreate with her so that her children will become priests and priestesses of that God or goddess as well. Okay, so pay attention now. If you're just reading your Bible in English, you're going to totally miss the difference here. So he thought that she was a zona because she had covered her face. So he went over to the zona, who he thought was a zona, where she was sitting. And he said, not realizing that it was his daughter-in-law, come, let me go into you. And she answered, what will you pay to sleep with me? To come into me is literally how it reads. Now, what does John say in the book of Revelation to the, the body of Messiah about Babylon? He says, come out of her, my people. Talking about spiritual idolatry and mixing with the, the systems of this world and idolatry of this world. Come out of her. Verse 17, he said, I will send you a kid from the flock of goats. And then she said, will you also give me something as a guarantee until you send it? And he answered, what should I give you as a guarantee? She said, your seal, your chotam. Now your seal, that's probably a ring that has a very specific uh, like symbol on it. That is to act, you know, like when we sign paperwork now, like we sign, like, you know, this is my signature, right? And so like all these, all these scribbly things are like a legally binding series of scribbles that if a notary looks at that or whoever looks at that, yes, that's them signing that. And it's very unique to me. But instead of signatures in the ancient times, you had like a seal that you would wear maybe as a bracelet or a ring. And then sometimes off of that, you would have a cord, like, like a string, that would come off of that, that would be attached to a bracelet. So if you're doing legal transactions, only you would have access to that seal. So it's also used in Song of Solomon 8.6. God says to Israel, I will put a chotam on your hearts. I will put a seal on your heart. Like I will take my seal and put it on your hearts. She says, give me that seal with its Patil in Hebrew, with its cord. Remember the cord. Now, this is important too because flip over to Numbers 15.38 with me real quick. Numbers 15.38. Numbers 15.38. Jason, can you bring me that tool or anything that's going to see with the blue threads on it? Numbers 15.38. 
God tells the people of Israel, tell them to make through all their generations tzitziot, or tassels. Tassels, see here? These tassels on this, on this talit. Make tzitzit on the corners of their garments and put with the tzitzit on each corner a techelet patil, a blue patil. Why? Because it's a symbol of your identity and your relationship and your connectivity to God. The, the blue cord on the four corners. Okay? So let's go back to Genesis 38. He says, I, she says, I want your seal on your ring and I want your patil, your cord. It's a symbol of that which connects you to your clan, your identity and your tribe and your mate, your staff. Now, these three things are not coincidental. These are three things that, that connect him to God, that connect him to his tribe, and connect him to the royal promise and decree given over his family. So, in other words, what he's saying is like, I'm going to go sleep with a prostitute, with a zona, and I'm going to pay her a goat. And then she, she's like, well, what are you going to give me to guarantee that you're going to come back with a goat? Oh, I'll give you all the stuff that is the most meaningful things in my life. Think of the disregard he has for those things. I'm going to give you all of my identity. Almost like Esau is where I was going. Almost like Esau. Remember, Esau did what? He sold the birthright. And it says, it says about Esau, this in doing so showed how much he disregarded the birthright. You see, Judah's falling into the same trap. He doesn't, he's thinking about the here and now, like an animal thinks. Pleasure, calories, desire, right? Instead of thinking, man, that stuff connects me to my people and the promises of God and my identity with God as a, as a, as a, as a tribe and as a nation. Fine, yeah, here it is. You can have it. I'll be back in a little while. So, she, so he gave it to her. And then he went and he slept with her and she conceived by him. And she got up and went away. She took off her veil and she put on her widow's clothes again. Judah sent the kid with his friend, the Adulami, remember Hira, to receive the guarantee items back. So he's sending this guy who's just a, you know, some heathen guy it's like, whose name means liberty and anger to go collect all these valuable things, to receive it back from the woman. But he couldn't find her. And he asked the people where she had been. Now this is Hira talking. Where is the Kadesha? The Kadesha. Where is the temple prostitutes? that my friend Judah slept with. So it's interesting here because Judah apparently, when talking to his friend Hira, did not say, I slept with the Zonah here, go get my stuff from her. What did he say? I slept with the temple prostitute. Go get my stuff from her. It's even worse. It speaks to the moral and spiritual brokenness of Judah at this point, isn't it? And they say, we don't have, there isn't a Kedeshah here. There isn't one of those here. Now this word Kedeshah, if you look, we're not going to go there for the sake of time. But Hosea 4, it uses this word Kedeshah in relation to God's telling Hosea, your wife is like a Kedeshah. And your wife in the story of Hosea is like the people of Israel. That they are, they have turned into temple prostitutes, but go retrieve them because I made a promise to them and I will not forsake that promise and I will be true and I will be faithful even when they are not. Go find them. 
And he's telling Hosea that your wife is like becoming like this. Or she was that. And she continues to act that way. So where is the Kedeshah who was on the road to the place of the eyes? But they answered, there hasn't been a prostitute, a Kedeshah here. Now, what's interesting here is that Judah not only is sleeping with, or at least telling his friend that he slept with a temple prostitute, but he made zero effort to not conceive by her, did he? What's interesting about this is that it speaks again to the moral and spiritual depravity of Judah, that he's willing to take the seed, the seed that was promised to him, that through him kings and redeemers would come, that through him he would be like the dust of the earth and the stars of the sky. And what is he willing to do with that seed? He's willing to throw it away to a Kedeshah. Does that add a little bit more gravity to the story? To the, the spiritual, he's willing to sacrifice the seed, the potential of a redeemer. He's willing to sacrifice it to its, a temple prostitute. And she conceives. Now, we know that God is sovereign, right? And in a minute, we're going to figure out how he is sovereign in the story, even though it seems dark and, and gross and dysfunctional. But it says, there hasn't been a prostitute here. In verse 23, Yehuda says, all right. Let her keep the things, wow, so that we won't be publicly shamed. So he cares more about his reputation than about those things that are eternal. I sent the kid, but you didn't find her. Verse 24, about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been acting like a zonah. Moreover, she is pregnant as a result of her being a zonah, a prostitute. Judah said, well, it's okay. You know, I, I, I have embellished in that sin. No, what did he say? Bring her out and let her be burned alive. Man, Judah is a self-righteous bigot, isn't he? He's a hypocrite. Not only is he embellishing in that sin and taking everything that represents eternal aspects and connection to his God and his people, and willing to sacrifice the seed for a zonah or for a chadashah, now he's saying, oh, you're acting that way? Come on, let's burn her alive. That is hypocrisy at its finest, isn't it? And we talked about one of the fastest ways to turn people away from the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is to be a hypocrite. Because everybody knows it. Be a hypocrite and profane the name of God. Now, what's interesting about this, burning her alive, this is a punishment Look over with me to Leviticus 21, verse 9. Leviticus 21, 9. Leviticus 21, 9. This is a very specific form of capital punishment. Leviticus 21, 9, it becomes codified in Torah. The daughter of a priest, a Kohen, who profanes herself by becoming a Zonah, who profanes her father, she is to be put to death by fire. What Judah is saying here is that we, are, we need to bring her out here and kill her in the way that priests' daughters are to be killed. Why? I don't know. Either he thinks that she is a priest's daughter, maybe she was a priest's daughter, maybe a pagan priest's daughter. I don't know. But you guys can maybe study that out through the week and let me know what you think. Send me an email. 
When she was brought out, she sent the message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man to whom these things, now what things? The seal, the cord, and the staff belong. Determine, I beg you, whose these are. The signet, the cord, and the staff. Those things that are, identify you with your people, with your God, and with royalty. Then Judah acknowledged owning them, and he said, She is more of a sadiq, a sadika, than a righteous woman than I am, because I didn't let her become the wife of my son Shelah, and he never slept with her again. When she went into labor, it became evident that she was going to have tomim, twins. Now, when is the only other time that we see prior to this a woman veiling her identity, concealing her identity, and then having twins? Anybody? Yeah, we get, we get Jacob and Esau, don't we? Now, there's some kind of connection there. I don't know what it is, but it's, that's the kind of stuff I hope I light a fire instead of filling a pail in your minds today. And maybe you can go home and research this stuff. And Yeah, what is the connection there? When she went into labor, it became evident that she was going to have twins. As she was in labor, one of them put out his hand. And the midwife took his hand and tied a scarlet thread on it, saying, this one came out first. But when he withdrew his hand, his brother came out. His brother broke out. And so she said, how did you manage to paratz? How did you manage to break out first? Therefore, his name was Peretz, breaking out. This is also the word used in like a modern Hebrew, like a flash flood, a peretz, like a flood. Then, came, then out came his brother with the scarlet thread on his hand, and he was given the name Scarlet, Zerach. Flip over with me to Matthew chapter 1. While you're going there, this story seems like a hot mess, doesn't it? Why did we pause? Why is this story even there? We paused at Joseph being sold into Egypt. Then suddenly we're going to take a 20-year detour with Judah and talk about how he accidentally sleeps with his daughter-in-law and gets her pregnant, thinking it was a prostitute. Why? Because I think we're supposed to look at the next 12 or 13 chapters, not with Joseph being the main character, but what if you look at this story in this narrative with Judah being the main character? Judah, the man through whom the kings will come. The man through whom the Messiah will be born. And J- Joseph is a catalyst and a way to prompt true repentance in Judah. Just like Yeshua is supposed to be a catalyst to bring true repentance and confession and weeping and sorrow as they look on the one whom they have pierced for the people of Judah today. You see, Paul says, if I save some of you Gentiles, that's great. In Romans 11, he says this. Why? Because it just might provoke some of my Jewish brethren to jealousy. But this is a mess, isn't it? Can God redeem this story? Can he use it? Can he use our bad decisions for his glory? Absolutely. Absolutely. Look at Genesis. I'm sorry. Matthew chapter one. 
This is the genealogy of Yeshua, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Look how far we get before we hit some yucky situations. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Peretz and Zerach and their mother. Look at this little scribal note here off to the side that Matthew is making sure that the reader of this gospel knows the yucky situation that we just walked through. It says their mother was who? Tamar. Matthew could have just left that off there, couldn't he? He could have really kind of cleaned it up and sanitized this story for us. But nothing speaks more to the sovereignty of God than when men really screw things up, but God somehow uses it for his glory. And this book is so divine that it preserves all of that. This, this book is so inspired that it left all of that craziness in there and all that dysfunction and, and, and jealousy and strife. It left all that in there for us to see, to edify us and to tell us, yeah, I know that you're a hot mess as well, Gabe Rutledge, but God will use it for his glory. Paul says he works all things together for his good, right? That was a complete rabbit trail. I have nowhere I was going that. I told you last week that I would talk a little bit about these literary um, devices or these literary structures in the book of Genesis. They are all over. The entire Bible is what we call a chiastic structure. A chiastic structure, which is, if you look over there, there's a menorah, a menorah to the right over there. It's a picture of symmetry. And chiastic structures are a literary tool and structure which are supposed to lead us inward toward the middle candle. What, would, what do we call the middle candle of a menorah? Anybody remember? The shamish, the servant. Every chiastic structure you find in the Bible, it's a picture of symmetry. It's a picture of the menorah. It's supposed to lead us inward to the center candle, which is the servant. Who is the servant? Yeshua is the servant. Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. So here, in just in these last several chapters of the book of Genesis, in the story of Joseph, we have a chiastic structure. And it, it's perfectly symmetrical. You know, it's, you, see, you have like A and then A1, B, B1, C, C2, or whatever. And it keeps going down to the middle right here, the genealogy of Israel. And, and it's, it's perfect symmetry, though. These are all over the Bible. You have chiastic structures within chiastic structures, and the whole Bible is a chiastic structure, all leading us to think to the middle of that chiastic structure, which always points to the Redeemer, the servant. Here, here's another one in the book of Genesis. This is just Genesis 49, by the way. Look over at Genesis 49 real quick. And then we're going to wrap up for the day. Genesis 49. This is a chiastic structure within, within the blessings that uh, Jacob is giving to all his sons. This chiastic structure is really interesting to me because of the middle, the middle candle is verses like 18 and 19, something right here. And if you look over at Genesis 49, go to verse 18 and verse 19. Well, we can back up to 16. Genesis 49, 16. It says, Dan will judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan will be like a viper on the road, a horned snake in the path that bites the horse's heels. So its rider falls off backward. That's why some people speculate that. The Antichrist, if it is a single figure, will come from the tribe of Dan. But I don't know. But then it goes on. Here's a weird little phrase. 
Jacob says, right after talking about Dan, I wait. Here, we can look at it in Hebrew. I wait. I wait for the Lord's Yeshua. His salvation. This is the very first time in the Hebrew Bible, and up until this point, where we see the name Yeshua anywhere in the Bible. And it's just nestled within this chiastic structure right here in the middle where Jacob is blessing his sons and he's about to die. In the very center of that, we have Jacob saying, I wait for the Lord's Yeshua. You see, the middle candle, the middle of every chiastic structure is a pointing to the Messiah. Now, this is a very quick crash course on chiastic structures. They're all through the Bible. You can hunt them out and find them yourselves. But I I told you last week that I would bring out a couple, and these are just a couple in the book of of Genesis. But I hope that strengthens your faith. This is like a thumbprint of God. It's very hard for a human being to sit down and write this out in such a mannered way, in such a symmetrical way, and then it point to Yeshua who would 3,500 years later be that salvation. Let's pray, and then we'll, uh, we have about five or ten minutes for questions. Father, I thank you so much that your word is true, and that your word is timeless, and that your promises will be made true, even as they are unfolding in our day. As we see the systems and the governments and the nations of this world rattling their swords, when we hear of wars and rumors of wars, Father, we lift our head high because you are drawing near. Our redemption that we are waiting for, our salvation is drawing near. I pray that everything that was read today and spoken today will be like seeds that will be planted and grow into a bountiful harvest for your kingdom. I pray this in Yeshua's name. Amen.